I was talking to a good friend of mine this past week who just uh, this year began a new business. And uh, I asked him how it was going last Wednesday, and his comment was, I think I have three weeks. If things don't turn up within three weeks, I'm going under. And a lot of you can identify. You know, these are really tough times. The headlines in the Statesman this morning predict uh, economic turmoil and financial disaster. For many of us, we may lose our businesses and our homes. And times are just difficult. These are very difficult times. If that's your situation this morning, then you can identify with the disciples in the boat with Jesus. The event that uh, we want to look look at today in Matthew, the 8th chapter. Chapter 8, verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's odd that the Lord uh, was trying to evade the crowds. That was a pattern in his life. He loved people individually, but not in mass. He always seemed to uh, avoid crowds, which has always struck me as strange. I like crowds, particularly if they're centered around me as they were in Jesus' uh, time, and yet he avoided them. There are a couple of reasons, I believe. One is that the Lord wanted to avoid setting off uh, uh, political upheaval. Palestine was like a tinderbox in those days. They were ready to throw the Romans out, and almost anything would have ignited that explosion, and he would have caused revolution, which he wanted to avoid. I really think, though, there's a, there's a another more profound reason why the Lord avoided the crowds. It's based on the Lord's recognition that at any one time, most people in a large group don't really understand what's going on. Uh, within this crowd, there was a, a sort of hard core of faith, a believing remnant, people that understood what the Lord was saying and whose hearts were committed to him. But the bulk of people that he ministered to simply were going along for the ride. It was the thing to do. And the Lord knew that. So he would spend endless time working with individuals, but he really didn't care much for the crowd. He ministered to them. It was a sort of pool from which he fished. But his greater concern was for what I call the hard core of faith, the people who were genuinely committed to the Lord. And so he was always thinning out the ranks. Like the Marines, he was looking for a few good men and women. And that's what's happening here in this uh, in as Matthew describes the process for us in verses 18 through 22. First, a scribe came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This man's ambition was noble. He was willing to go anywhere the Lord was going. And in effect, the Lord tells him that if he follows him, He'll never know where he's going. He'll never have a place that's secure. His circumstances will not always be good. That's what he's saying. Birds have roosting places. Foxes have holes in the ground, but the Lord doesn't have any place he can call home. Now, that's threatening to me and probably to you. I like to have a place I can call home. I like to go home because it's nice and secure and people love me there and, and I can get away from the world. 
It was difficult for us when we first moved to Boise because it wasn't home. We lived 18 years in another place, and it was hard to feel that we had any roots here, and I, it was difficult for me to bring myself to the place that I would say after work, I'm going home. Because it wasn't home. It was just a house we were living in. But now it's become a home. And we're beginning to feel more comfortable. You see, I like that. I like to be secure. And you women like to, to have a home that's yours. You can make it into a nest, you know, and pad it and put feathers in it and make it a really nice place to live. And you just, it's cozy and nice. We all like that. But the Lord says, if you follow me, you may not find that to be true. You may not find the circumstances that you're looking for. You may not be secure and serene and peaceful in your setting. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. That sounds so unnecessarily harsh. It doesn't sound like the Lord. That's not the way he is. Here this man is going to pay his last respects to his father at the funeral, and the Lord says, No, get in the boat with me now. Let the dead bury their dead. doesn't sound like the Lord who commanded uh, honor and care for your family. But uh, if we understand the culture of that time, we understand that the Lord is not being harsh at all because this young man's father was not dead. He wasn't even sick. He wasn't even about to die. This apparently is an idiom to describe one's responsibilities as a son to your father. And in the culture of that day, a father, uh, a son stayed with his father until uh, the father died. That was what Abraham did when he went to Haran. He stayed with his father in Haran until his father died. And the text tells us after the death of his father, then he migrated on down into Palestine. That was the thing that was done. A couple of years ago, a classmate of mine uh, translated and read a, a text from this area of the world that described a young man's obligations to his father. He was supposed to plaster the roof on a day of rain. When the roof leaked, he got up on the roof and dabbed a little mud on it and uh, stopped the leaks. He was supposed to uh, wash his father's clothes. That was not the wife's job. That was the son's job. And when his father went to the bar and became drunk, the son went to the bar and took him home. And finally, he was to raise up a monument over his father's grave. In other words, he stayed with his father until his father died, and then he buried him. He erected a monument over his, his tomb. And you see what this young man is saying? He's saying, I'll follow you one of these days. But first, I have to fulfill all my obligations to my father. And, you know, 10, 15 years from now, when my father dies, then I'll follow you. Jesus says, no, no, no. You follow me now. You see, what this, one, what this man was looking for is what we look for, security in people. And Jesus is saying, you may not, if you follow me, find security in people. You won't find it in circumstances. You won't find it in relationships with people that you love and that love you. Your life may be hard and difficult. Now, that was the lecture, and now comes the illustration, because the Lord takes the disciples through two experiences that illustrate first the likelihood that we as followers of the Lord Jesus will go through difficult circumstances, and secondly, we will encounter people who are a real threat to us. The first uh, example takes place in the boat. Verse 23, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, 
the uh, term that's translated great storm here is the Greek term that means earthquake, a great shaking. We get our English word seismic from this term. The uh, earth and sea seemed to shake, so great was the force of the, of the wind. A great storm in the sea, so that the boat was hidden in the waves. From the standpoint of, a, of an observer, the little boat would go down into the trough between the waves and disappear from sight. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. We're going down. And he said to them, Why are you so fearful, you men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, the, the gospel accounts are necessarily sparse. You have to fill in the details. And uh, apparently what happened is that Jesus and the disciples got uh, in this little boat and they started rowing south down the Sea of Galilee. The, they were headed toward the region of the Gerasenes, which was at the far end of the sea, about 13 or 14 miles away. The Sea of Galilee is just about the size of Cascade Lake, a little wider. It's about 8 miles wide and about 13 miles long. And it's given to, to freak storms. Strange things happen on that little lake. It's down in a trough, about 700 feet below sea level. There are mountains on both sides, the Golan Heights on, to the east and to the west. There's a range of mountains that's cut from in an east to west direction by uh, canyons. And when there's a low pressure condition over the, the lake, the winds come down these canyons like uh, they were coming through a wind tunnel, and they uh, revolve in a circular fashion around the lake, and they create uh, horrendous storms. And they, these storms can can arise almost uh, within moments out of a cloudless sky. Now, these fishermen were used to this sort of thing. They were fishermen. They spent a lot of time on the sea, but this was a greater storm than they had ever seen. They were overwhelmed by it. They couldn't cope with it, even with all of their, their uh, sailing skills. The Lord ignored the whole thing. He was tired. It had been a long and busy day, and he went down in the hole of the ship and fluffed up his sea bag and put his head on it and covered himself with his cloak and went sound asleep. And he was sawing logs while the storm was raging outside and the water was sloshing over the gunnels and the fishermen were bailing like crazy and shortening the sail and they thought they were going down any, any moment. And Pete, Peter, I suppose, went downstairs and shook the Lord and said, Lord, don't you know we're going down? And uh, in the Ropricus, uh Textus absurdus version, I can see the Lord uh, getting up and rubbing his eyes and saying, oh, you guys, how does a man get any sleep around this place? And he goes upstairs, and the wind is raging, and the sailors are hanging on for dear life, and the Lord says, hush! And then he goes back down the hole of the ship and covers himself up with his cloak and goes back to sleep, I suppose. The term that's used here, be quiet, is a word that's used in Capernaum when the Lord was in the synagogue and he was preaching and he was harassed by a demon-possessed man. The man kept jumping up and interrupting him and finally the Lord said, Hush! It's enough of that. And the demon-possessed man was quiet. And that's what the Lord said to the wind and the way. And, and there's this glassy sea. And Peter says to John, Wow! Did you see that? <clears throat> Now, for myself, I don't think 
that the Lord was speaking to the wind and the waves. I think he was speaking to the forces behind the wind and the waves. The demonic forces that work through natural elements to destroy. We know from the book of Job that God has given over into Satan's control for a period of time the natural forces. And he can use these to, to kill and maim and destroy typhoons and floods and hurricanes, and forest fires, things of this nature, are demonic in their origins. Satan is at work behind the scenes to destroy humanity. He's the murderer, not the Lord. The Lord's not trying to control things right now. He could if he wanted to, but ultimately he is in control of the forces behind the circumstances that threaten us. And that's the first thing I want you to see from this passage. He and he alone is, control, is in control of those forces. He's the master of the forces behind the circumstances that are harassing you this morning. The world's not running amok. God's not wringing his hands and pacing the floor and wondering what's going to happen next and how he's going to control the economy and what he's going to do with Iran. You know, oh, if they'd only send Kissinger over to Iran, he'd set things right. Or my, I hope the Republicans win in 1980. That's the answer to all. You know, no, no, no. That's not God's response to these things. He's in control of these forces. No anxiety there. It would be interesting to conjecture what the disciples' response would be had they had faith. Jesus says, you, you, you have little faith. If they'd had a lot of faith, how would they have responded? Well, they would have rowed, and they would have exercised all of their skills as seamen, and it would have been tough going. And their hands would have been raw from pulling on the ropes and from bailing. And it would have been a fight, a desperate fight to the end to keep the boat up. But the boat would not have sunk. The only thing different would have been their attitude toward their circumstances. They would not have been anxious and in turmoil. They would have first reminded themselves of Jesus' words. Jesus said, let's get into the boat and go to the other side. He did not say, let's get into the boat and go out into the middle and sink. Secondly, they would have remembered the Sermon on the Mount. God cares about birds and animals and things, plants. And if it matters to him about those things, it matters to him about us. And thirdly, the master of earth and sea was lying in the bottom of that boat, and that boat could not go down. And that's what you need to remember, and that's what I need to remember. The boat won't sink. Oh, you may lose your business. We may lose our homes. You may lose your health. Circumstances may take a downturn. Things may get worse instead of better. But your boat won't sink, you see. You'll be able to go through these circumstances with poise and with faith, loving people around you, serene and peaceful because you know who's in control of the forces behind the circumstances that are threatening you. Well, why then did Jesus do the miracle if the boat would have made it to the other side? Why did he bother to perform a miracle? Well, it was for the disciples. The Lord wasn't concerned about the boat sinking. He knew it wouldn't sink. He was concerned for the apostles and the disciples, and he wanted them to get the message. 
And so when he addressed the forces, he was teaching them that he's the master of earth and sea. He's the control. He's, he controls everything, you see. That's the only way he could get the message across. You know, if the Lord had acted as we think he acts, he would have come out of that boat angry because they awakened him in the middle of his sleep. And he said, ah, oh, you bunch of dummies, when are you ever going to get it right? When are you ever going to learn to trust me? And picked up his sea bag and walked across the Sea of Galilee and let the thing sink. <laughs> but that's not the way the Lord is. The whole thing, you see, was done to show them that he's in control. There's no panic in heaven. God is not biting his nails and wringing his hands and pacing the floor, thinking that our world is going to be overwhelmed by evil forces. God's in control of all the forces that intimidate us, the circumstances that threaten us. Now, the story is not over for the apostles. They have another lesson to learn. Not only is he in control of the forces behind the circumstances, he's in control of the forces behind the people that tyrannize us. Verse 28, And when he had come to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed opposed him as they were coming out of the tombs. The word translated meet here actually means to meet with hostile intent. It's the word that Luke uses to describe the king going out to war with another king. So these uh, men came with hostile intent. They were going to do violence to Jesus and the apostles, the disciples. They were so exceedingly violent that no one could pass by that road. Now, again, the intent of the gospel writers is simply to give us the facts, and you have to fill in. And I, and I like to go back and think through these stories and try to put myself in the, in the disciples' shoes and, and think through the circumstances they were facing and how, what they would have seen and what they would have done. You know, they had just gone through it, uh, an innervating experience, and you know how, uh, how that drains you emotionally. They were tired. They'd been rolling, and they'd been through this emotional experience, and it's now in the evening, the shadows are long over the Sea of Galilee, and the area where the ship ground up on the shore has a very foreboding cliff that juts up right on the shoreline. And uh, it was getting darker, and there was a cemetery there. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like cemeteries. I know there's nothing there, and, and there's nothing's going to hurt you, but cemeteries are always a little bit threatening, just the idea of a cemetery. I heard a story not too long ago of a man who was walking across a cemetery, and he fell into an open grave, and he couldn't get out. He leaped, and he jumped, and he couldn't get out. So he figured, well, I'll just wait until in the morning and somebody will come and haul me out. So he sat down in the corner of the grave and went to sleep. A little bit later, another man came across the same cemetery and fell in the same grave. And he began to leap and he was just panicked and he leaped and he jumped and he couldn't get out. And finally, in just sheer exhaustion, he, slung, he sat down in the corner and the first man to fall in the grave reached over and touched him on the knee and said, friend, you'll never get out of here. But he did. <laughs> we, you know, we're, we're like that. We don't like cemeteries. And uh, if you could picture yourself, the full moon and cloudless sky and glassy sea and 
strange shoreline and the cliffs up ahead and long shadows and it's dark and there are a bunch of tombs and out of the tombs come this these two maniacal uh, demon-possessed men, homicidal in their intent. These men were the they were notorious for their violence. Uh, people were afraid to make the journey from Gadara down to the seashore where the little port was. It would be somewhat like uh, knowing that if you had to go to the airport today, underneath the overpass at Vista and, and Highway 80 was a, a crazy man in a truck that was going to try to ram you. That's, that's, that's what these men were. You couldn't go by those tombs without expecting to be attacked. In the other gospel writer's account, they tell Jesus that their name, the name of the demons that possess the man, is Legion. Well, if we take, uh, take them at face value, a legion was 6,000 armed warriors. So there was a vast number of demons possessing this, this man and his cohort. No one could chain him. They tried to put him in chains, and he'd break the chains, get free. He ran naked through the community, uncontrollable, violent, homicidal, suicidal, beyond uh, human control a threat to the entire community. And he comes out to meet Jesus and the disciples. And here they'd always already been through this horrible experience on the sea. And their nerves were already shaken. And out come these two men to attack Jesus. And I imagine the disciples scattered and grabbed for their swords or whatever. And Jesus is standing there on the seashore. And suddenly this man falls on his knees before the Son of Man. Verse 29, we read, And behold, they cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The phrase, what do we have to do with you, means what is there in common between us? We have nothing in common. The Lord's intent was to save and redeem and heal and and make people whole, healthy in mind and spirit. Satan and his demons want to destroy. That's, that's the real tragedy of people in the world today. They don't see that, who will not listen to God and respond to his love. What they don't see is that to act contrary to God's will is to put yourself into the hands of the enemy, the, the great enemy of humanity. He wants to destroy and blight and ruin life where the Lord Jesus wants to save and redeem and bring wholesomeness and health back into our experience. They have nothing in common. Nothing. And the demon recognized that. Furthermore, he says, have you come to cast us out before the time? Here's at least one demon that had read the scriptures. He knew exactly what the scriptures predicted in terms of the future. He'd probably read Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. He knew the whole thing. He had his charts drawn out. He knew the Lord was coming back and he was going to deal with, with demons. And he knew the timing was off. It wasn't the right time. Something was wrong here. And so he says, you're not going to throw us out, put us in the abyss before the time, are you? It's the intent of the statement in verse 29. Now there was at a distance from there a herd of many swine feeding. Luke tells us there were actually 2,000 swine on the bluff above the seashore. And the demons began to entreat him, saying, Since, that's the force of that word, since 
You are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Be gone. Get away. And they came out and went into the swine, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. And the herdsmen fled and went away to the city and reported everything, including the incident of the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet or to oppose, same term that's, uh, that you see earlier in verse 28, to oppose Jesus. And when they saw him, they entreated him to depart from their region. And you say, why pigs? That seems strange. And why would God, why would the Lord allow these, uh, these demons to determine where they are to go and what course Jesus is to follow? Actually, the point that Matthew make is, makes is that Jesus simply permitted them to have their way. Because at this point, it was not his intention to deal ultimately with demons. That's coming later. He is going to put them in the abyss. But for right now, he's letting Satan have his way and do as he pleases and blight and ruin. And of course, he's taking everything that Satan does and he's using even that for his good purposes. But for the time being, he's not trying to run the world right. He's letting Satan go. And so it wasn't the time to cast them into the abyss or cast them out of the country. And my response is, what more appropriate place for demons than in a bunch of pigs? I used to raise pigs. They are filthy, obnoxious beasts. There is absolutely no redeeming quality in a pig. And I can't think of more appropriate place for a demon to take up temporary residence than in a pig. Now again, you know, you have to put all this together and yet you have to visualize it. This demon-possessed man is screaming at the top of his lungs. And, and the tension is like electricity in the air. And the disciples are cowering back, wondering what's going to happen next. And Jesus, with a word, says, Be gone, go away. And the demons go into the pigs, and the pigs begin to squeal and scream, and they run pell-mell down the bank over the bluff into the water, and you hear 2,000 splashes. And then there is absolute calm. And Peter says, Wow, John, did you see that? And what we learn from that story is that Jesus is in control of the forces behind the people who tyrannize us. Your husband who walked out, your wife who was unfaithful, the teacher that's oppressing you or putting pressure on you, your children or parents. Or anyone else in the world that's tyrannizing you, who intimidates you and frustrates you and keeps you from realizing your purposes. It may, it may be someone as violent as the man that Jesus and the disciples encounter. It may be someone who is much more benign, but who is just as malevolent in his, in his intentions or her intentions. But what you need to realize is that the Lord is in control of the forces behind that person. They are not running amok. God is not anxious and uptight about that incident. He is at peace. And he's in control. And that person can only go as far as God permits him to go. You know the problem with the world? It's people. Pure and simple. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days, that's the period between the first and second comings of Jesus, that's not some far-off epoch, that's today. We're living in the last days, as it's defined in Scripture, the period between Jesus' first and second comings. 
Paul says, in the last days, violent times will come. And he uses exactly the same word there that's used to describe this demoniac, a violent man. And Paul tells Timothy why these times will be so violent. He says, men, for men, will be lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, rather than lovers of God. That's the problem with the world. It's people that Satan is moving around as though they're on a chessboard, manipulating, exploiting, using to accomplish his purposes. And often those people tyrannize us. And we forget that it's God who's in control of the forces behind those people. Do you know God's attitude toward people that are bent upon destroying the gospel? He laughs. Psalm 2 describes uh, the nations that have conspired against God and his anointed one, and they say, we will dethrone God's son. The psalmist says, God laughs. That's a funny. He chuckles. That strikes him as humorous. You're going to do what? You're going to dethrone my son. Now that's a funny. I was in a friend's living room not too long ago, and they had a one-year-old son that was playing around the coffee table. He had learned to walk a week or so before, and he had just learned the magic word, no. And his dad says, all right, son, time to go to bed. No. And his dad said, ha ha, isn't that cute? You know what he did? He had one of these little jumpsuits, you know, they put kids in. He went over and grabbed him by the scruff of the neck in a very loving way. He just picked him up like that, shoved him under his arm, and carried him upstairs to the bed and plopped him in and shut the door. And that was that. That was a funny. <laughs> and you know, that's what God says. When men array themselves against him and against the truth and against his people, and they tyrannize us and frustrate us and inhibit us, and we think they're going to crush us, and God says, now that's humorous. He's the one that's in charge of the forces behind the people that are tyrannizing you today. So why are you so afraid? Why am I so afraid? What do we have to fear? When he controls the forces behind our circumstances and the people that threaten us. Several months ago, in a Sunday evening service, I mentioned Horatio Spafford, who was a very successful attorney in uh, Chicago. Just before the turn of the century, he was instrumental in helping to found Moody Bible Institute, widely known Christian businessman there. During the Chicago fire, he was burned out. His house was burned to the ground. And uh, so to get his wife and children out of Chicago, he put them on a sailing boat and sent them to England, because that's where his parents were. And on the way... A storm struck, and the ship went down with all hands on board. He lost his entire family, his wife, his children, everything. And in response, he wrote the words to this hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Your business may go under, we may all go broke, your health may fail, our country may fall. We have no guarantee that America will endure. If God's own nation 
didn't endure, how can, how can we be assured that we will as a people? And that's, that was the problem. Down in the southern kingdom of Judah, they were saying, oh, those Israelites up there, now they deserve it. They're wicked. And they collapsed because of their idolatry. But God will preserve us because the temple is down here. Nonsense. God's not obligated to preserve the United States at all, any more than he was to preserve his own people. The whole thing may collapse, but if it does, the boat won't sink. You and I will have the resources to face that set of circumstances and be God's men and women. And we can go through it with poise, with peace, and with joy, and with eternity, eternity's values in view. Because he's the master. He controls. So whatever our lot, he's taught us to say, it's well, it's well with my soul.